0: Well, hi there, and welcome to 45 RPM Music of the 40s and 50s. I'm your host, Sam Waldron, and the theme of today's show is songs with interesting stories. We'll focus on some mid-century music through the lens of questions like Where did this song come from? How was it different from others of its time? We'll start with a piece of music written for murder, and then wander through the genres of gospel, blues, pop standards, movie music, and rock and roll. So come along and let's explore some of the things that we probably didn't know about music we probably do know. Now, here's a story about some music written by a composer you may never have heard of, written for a movie you have heard of by a director whose name you know. This is the story of the film score for the 1960 Alfred Hitchcock movie, Psycho. The music was written by Bernard Herrmann, who did the same for other movies, including War of the Worlds, North by Northwest, and Citizen Kane. He also did music for TV shows like The Twilight Zone. Herrmann's musical specialty was terror and suspense, and he was handed a special challenge for the movie Psycho, when Hitchcock said he had a very small musical budget. So Herman used only string instruments, putting mutes on them to make them sound especially chilly. The movie itself defied expectations from those times, staging the death of one of the major stars in the first few minutes. Psycho was shot in black and white, and was vastly more frightening then than it is now, when movie audiences have been exposed to so much explicit violence. The music we'll listen to is what audiences heard during a murder scene in which star Janet Leigh is killed in a shower. At first, Hitchcock didn't want any music at all, just the screaming. But when he heard Herman's score, he changed his mind. The music adds the elements of terror, panic, and loss of control to this scene, which didn't show the actual violence, just let the audience imagine it. As I listen to this, I think I hear the music gradually getting less energetic, suggesting Janet Lee's will to fight and her life itself are just dwindling away. The score of Psycho was a throwback to the era when silent films relied almost entirely on music to set the mood. Now here's the music from that famous murder scene. That's the scary score that played during the famous murder scene in Alfred Hitchcock's movie, Psycho. Our next story involves a skinny kid with glasses named Buddy Holly. Although his career was cut short by a plane crash when he was just 22, Holly helped define rock and roll, even though he didn't care much for it. Holly grew up in a musical family, learning to sing and play the guitar while soaking up the influences of gospel, country, and rhythm and blues. When he was 16, Holly made his first appearance on local TV in Lubbock, Texas. A few years later, in 1955, he was the opening act at three concerts for Elvis Presley and one for Bill Haley in the Commons. In the summer of 1957, after their recording of That'll Be the Day had become a number one hit, Holly and his band, The Crickets, started improvising a song they were calling Cindy Lou with a cha-cha beat. The band's drummer suggested they use the name of his girlfriend, Peggy Sue, and that title stuck. When Holly and the Crickets first performed the song in Idaho, their young audience went wild over it. But Holly himself wasn't crazy about the song or even about the type of music he was helping to invent. In a 1957 interview with Canadian disc jockey Red Robinson, Holly said he didn't think rock and roll was likely to last much longer, and he said he preferred, in his words, something a little more quieter anyway. Still. Peggy Sue was Holly's second most popular hit. It rose to number three on the Billboard bestseller list in 1957. Here it is.
1: For you, oh Peggy, my Peggy Sue. Oh well, I love you, gal. It's yes, I love you, Peggy Sue. Peggy Sue, Peggy Sue, pretty, 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 pretty Peggy Sue. Oh, oh Peggy, my Peggy Sue. Oh well, I love you, gal, and I need. so rare and true. Oh, Peggy, my Peggy Sue. <laughs> well, I love you, girl. I want you. Peggy Sue, Peggy Sue Pretty, 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 pretty Peggy Sue Oh Peggy, my Peggy Sue Oh well I love you gal, yes I need you Peggy Sue I love you Peggy Sue With a love so rare and true Oh Peggy, my Peggy Sue I want you, Peggy Sue oh, well, I love you, girl, And I want you, Peggy Sue
0: Buddy Holly and his 1957 hit recording, Peggy Sue You're listening to 45 RPM, music of the 40s and 50s I'm your host, Sam Waldron And today we're featuring songs with interesting stories behind them Now, let's turn to a piece of hillbilly music The songwriter and performer here was Bill Monroe, who came from the Backwoods area of Kentucky and almost single-handedly created a new type of music called bluegrass. Monroe wrote and recorded a song called Blue Moon of Kentucky, named for the 13th full moon in a calendar year. This phenomenon happens only once every few years, and it's traditionally seen as a sign of bad luck. But Monroe turned that interpretation upside down calling on the blue moon to bring him some good luck in romance. In an interview with National Public Radio many years later, Monroe said he tried to fill the recording with lots of elements that would evoke the South, the influences of Baptists, Methodists, Scottish bagpipes, Southern blues, as well as a five-string banjo and a fiddle. Monroe and his band became regulars on the Grand Old Opry music program broadcast to much of the country over WSM in Nashville, Carl Perkins and Elvis Presley both heard this song when they were young, and Elvis recorded it at Sun Studios in 1954 as the B-side of his very first commercial recording. Monroe first recorded it in 1946 as a waltz. Presley's version jazzed it up and speeded it up, selling lots of records and earning additional royalties for Bill Monroe. When Elvis was invited to appear on the Grand Ole Opry, he went backstage and apologized to Monroe for taking such liberties with the song. Monroe said, that was just fine, and he did something very unusual. He out Elvised the king and started re-recording Blue Moon of Kentucky with an even faster tempo than Elvis had used. Blue Moon of Kentucky has become a standard, and for whatever this is worth, it's the official bluegrass song of the state of Kentucky. So here's the song by Bill Monroe and his bluegrass boys. Kentucky. The next song I want to introduce is so interesting, I'm going to push the boundaries of the 50s just a bit into the early 1960s. This was the pre-Beatles era, and popular music was still dominated by ballads and teenage love songs, and even novelty songs featuring performers like Alvin and the Chipmunks. But a new current of more serious music was starting to flow into this scene. Our story starts with a young singer-songwriter from Minnesota. His name was Robert Zimmerman, and he moved to New York's Greenwich Village in 1960, where he started performing in clubs. By 1962, he was just 21 years old, Zimmerman was tired of rock and roll. He changed his name to Bob Dylan and started singing a song he'd written called Blowing in the Wind. A producer at Columbia Records heard the song and managed to get a demo recording of Blowing in the Wind into the hands of a folk group named Peter, Paul, and Mary. They recorded it, and the record became the fastest-selling single in the history of Warner Brothers records. Blowing in the Wind achieved the status of an anthem for the Civil Rights Movement, and later for the anti-war movement as well. The song is an excellent reflection of the 1960s, when it was starting to become obvious that the uncomfortable present was going to change into a future that would be different in ways that weren't quite clear. The song poses some questions and then has a line, the answer is blowing in the wind, that's so ambiguous it lets the audience interpret the message any way it wants to. Here's that song as it was recorded by Peter, Paul, and Mary.
2: A man walk down before they call him a man? How many seas must a white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? How many times must the cannon? blowing in the wind the answer is blowing in the wind how many times must a man look up before he can see the sky
0: 1962, folk singers Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Bob Dylan's song Blowin' in the Wind. You're listening to 45 RPM music of the 40s and 50s. I'm your host, Sam Waldron, and today's show is filled with interesting stories about influential recordings. We've sampled a piece of music from a film score, we've learned about a rock song, a bluegrass song, and a folk song. For our next story, let's turn to the blues. One of the most enduring blues and jazz standards in the 20th century was put together from scraps of overheard conversations over quite a few years in Mississippi. The St. Louis Blues was written in 1914 by W.C. Handy, who liked to sing and play the coronet with various bands. Handy told how he used to hear black people singing as they toiled away at hard labor, and he remembered bits and pieces of their words and their melodies. He recalled he once heard a woman complaining that her man had a heart like a rock cast in the sea, and that line made it into the lyrics. After Bessie Smith recorded this in 1925, the St. Louis Blues became the first blues song to capture the attention of millions of white people in addition to the traditionally black audience for this genre. When Handy died in 1958, The song was bringing in royalties that would be equivalent to nearly a quarter of a million dollars in 2019. Fats Waller and Louis Armstrong recorded the song in the 20s, Bing Crosby followed in 1932, and Billie Holiday in 1940. Dave Brubeck played this song at Carnegie Hall in 1963. For this show, I had too many choices of performers, including Louis Prima, Duke Ellington, Nat King Cole, Ella Fitzgerald, Chuck Berry. Glenn Miller, Pete Fountain, and Benny Goodman. I wanted something that projects the power of the song and still makes it easy to follow the lyrics. So here is the St. Louis Blues performed by Pearl Bailey.
3: If it wasn't for power, For me, I love that man like a schoolboy loves his pie, just like an old Kentucky Colonel loves his mint and rice. Thank
0: Pearl Bailey, and the St. Louis Blues. The subject of our next song is an ordinary two-lane highway that in many places is hard to find these days, but for half a century this highway from Chicago to Los Angeles was a legendary dream for millions of Americans. Many of them were hoping the highway would help them escape to a better life, and many just wanted an exotic adventure that they could afford. The highway in the song have the same name, Route 66. Opened in 1926 as part of the original U.S. numbered highway system, Route 66 took motorists through Illinois, Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, and California. The route totaled just under 2,500 miles and was the first paved highway that linked Chicago with Los Angeles. For the first 20 years of its existence, the highway didn't have a song. It was just a sort of lonely road. But then in 1946, a jazz musician and songwriter named Bobby Troop packed up his car in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and headed west with his wife on a road trip to Los Angeles. One morning, they were having breakfast at a Howard Johnson's and looking at a road map. She said to him, Bobby, why don't you write a song about Route 40? In an interview in 1985, Troop recalled that he told her that was a silly idea because they were going to pick up Route 66 in Chicago and take that the rest of the way. He told an interviewer, So we're driving along, and she says, Get your kicks on Route 66. I said, God, that's a marvelous idea for a song. Troop wrote about half the lyrics while they were driving, mentioning some of the places they passed, little-known cities like Joplin, Missouri and Flagstaff, Arizona, Don't Forget Winona. The purpose of the trip was to audition some music for Nat King Cole in Los Angeles. When Troop sat down at Cole's piano, he was so nervous he teetered off the piano bench. After a few songs he said, Nat, I wrote something on the way out here. It's just half finished, but I think maybe you'd like it. So I played Route 66, and he liked it so much he started playing with me. Cole recorded the song in March 1946. It spent eight weeks on the Billboard bestseller list and proved to be a game-changer for him, attracting a much bigger audience than Cole had had up to that time as a jazz pianist. As for Troop, by the time he died at the end of the 20th century, that musical road trip had earned him more than $4 million in royalties. Route 66 put cities like Flagstaff, Arizona on the map. It encouraged several generations of Americans to explore their country, and it gained worldwide fame for a little old two-lane highway.
4: to moto west travel my way take the highway that's the best get your kicks on route 66 it winds from chicago to l.a more than two thousand miles all the way Get your kicks on Route 66 Now you go through St. Louis, Joplin, Missouri And Oklahoma City looks mighty pretty, you'll see Amarillo, Gallup, New Mexico Flagstaff, Arizona, don't forget Winona Kingman, Boston, San Bernardino, won't you? When you make that cat life on your trip Get your kicks on Route 66
0: Met King Cole and Get Your Kicks on Route 66. Still ahead this hour, a famous song from a famous movie, a haunting gospel number, a couple of pop standards, and on tap next, a bit of country. I'm your host, Sam Waldron, and today we're discovering some of the stories behind important music from the mid-20th century. This next story involves a singer, songwriter, guitar player whose voice is instantly recognizable a man whose records have sold more than 90 million copies. His name, Johnny Cash, is practically synonymous with country music. This is the story of his very first hit record, which became a number one country hit and a top ten hit on the pop chart as well, shortly after it was released in 1956. Cash grew up in rural Alabama, and in 1954, after a stint in the Air Force in Germany, he settled in Memphis, got married, and tried to make ends meet by selling appliances door-to-door. Meanwhile, he pursued music on the side using an old guitar he'd bought in Germany for five dollars. Cash started a band with a couple of guys from a local car dealership, and soon he was on tour with Elvis Presley, where willing young women were always in plentiful supply. To help him resist all that temptation, the newly married Cash wrote a song called I Walked the Line, essentially A musical pledge of fidelity to his wife back home. Cash later said a Dale Carnegie business course inspired him to write a few of the key lines of the song, I keep my eyes wide open all the time, I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. The song was a huge hit but ultimately it wasn't enough to keep Johnny Cash on the straight and narrow. He wound up on tour for 300 nights a year, his marriage ended, he later married June Carter, and gradually, Cash came to struggle with powerful drugs. Still, I Walked the Line gave Johnny Cash an enduring image as a man with morals. In 2004, Rolling Stone magazine ranked the song number one on its list of the 100 greatest country music hits of all time.
5: keep my eyes wide open all the time, I keep the ends out for the tie that binds, because you're mine, I walk the line. you i know i'd even try to turn the tide because you're mine i walk the line fine. Because you're mine. I walk the line.
0: Johnny Cash and I Walk the Line. Our next story is about a recording that flopped when it came out, selling only a few thousand seventy-eight RPM discs. But a few years later that recording helped touch off a revolution in the way American popular music was presented. It boosted the career of a young singer whose name became known around the world. Ironically, all this might never have happened if musicians hadn't gone on strike during World War II. The story starts in 1939 when a songwriter named Jack Lawrence accepted an assignment to write some lyrics to a new melody. Lawrence's words turned that music into a passionate love song called All or Nothing at All. Pretty soon, three recordings came out, one by bandleader Freddie Martin, one by Jimmy Dorsey, and one by the Harry James Orchestra, featuring that band's 23-year-old boy singer Frank Sinatra. None of these three recordings was successful, and the song was mostly forgotten. Now, fast forward to 1943. By then, Sinatra was drawing large crowds of young fans to concerts in New York City, and Columbia Records was frantic to release some new recordings by him. However, band and orchestra musicians were on strike against recording studios, and Columbia was dead in the water until somebody remembered Sinatra's 1939 recording of All or Nothing at All. When Columbia released the song in 1939, The performer was identified as the Harry James Orchestra with vocals by Frank Sinatra. But in 1943, Columbia labels it as performed by Frank Sinatra accompanied by the Harry James Orchestra. That small change marked a turning point. Up until then, the band leaders were the stars and the singers were subordinate. You can hear this in a lot of recordings from the early 1940s. Typically, you wouldn't hear the singer until a minute or more had passed with the vocals being mostly a bridge between the band's opening and closing music. But in this recording of All or Nothing at All, the band gets just 10 seconds before Sinatra comes on and takes possession of the performance. Combining the familiar pre-war trumpet sound of Harry James and the now popular Frank Sinatra at the microphone, this re-released recording of All or Nothing at All soon sold more than a million copies and rose to number two on the pop chart. Another thing this recording did was show off, to a much wider audience, the magic that Sinatra could do with a song. In the lyrics, a lover is saying, he doesn't want anything if he can't have everything. Sort of, give me all your love, or just give me nothing. Sinatra took those lyrics and made them his own. Howard Reich, the arts critic of the Chicago Tribune, described it like this. If you listen closely, Sinatra's singing this song as if he's telling these words to somebody. He's singing it exactly the way he would say it, and that was something new. That was uniquely his. And thus, from the forgotten dustbins of a 1939 musical flop, this recording emerged as a pop standard and became one of Frank Sinatra's signature songs.
6: Nothing at all Half a love never appealed to me If your heart never could yield to me Then I'd rather have nothing nothing at all, if it's love there is no in-between, why begin and cry for something that might have been, no, I'd rather have nothing. Oh, please, don't bring your lips so close to my cheek. Don't smile or I'll be lost beyond recall. The kiss in your eyes and the touch of your hand makes me weep my heart may grow dizzy and fall. And if I fell under the spell of your
7: call,
6: I would be caught in the undertow. So you see, I've got to say no, no, all or nothing at all.
0: Sinatra from 1939, with a song that started out as a commercial disaster, and then, because musicians were on strike, became a huge success. You're listening to 45 RPM Music of the 40s and 50s. I'm your host, Sam Waldron, and in this hour, we're learning the stories behind some influential music from the middle of the 20th century. Here's one I bet you didn't know. If you're a kid, or if you ever were a kid, chances are you've seen the 1939 movie The Wizard of Oz, and you've heard Judy Garland sing Over the Rainbow, widely considered to be one of the most important movie songs of all time. But did you know that song was so controversial when the movie was being made that the brass at MGM wanted it taken out? Well, here's the story. The movie's remarkable on a number of levels. In 1939, most movies were filmed in black and white. That's how The Wizard of Oz starts out, and the audience didn't think anything about it until Dorothy gets to the magic land of Oz, and suddenly the big screen is flooded with technicolor. But maybe that's another story. The Wizard of Oz was one of the very first movies that used music as a central and necessary part of telling the story. As Dorothy sings Over the Rainbow early in the film, she lets the audience know how very much she wants to escape from her black and white world in rural Kansas. She hopes to go to some magical place that she can only start to imagine. In just under three minutes, the song Over the Rainbow essentially lays out the whole theme for the movie. So what was the problem? A lot of MGM executives believed it was a dreadful idea to slow down the action early in the movie and let their young teenage star, Judy Garland, sing a ballad in a barnyard. They took out that scene, then put it back, took it out, put it back in. Eventually, It became obvious the song was necessary to lay the groundwork for the Land of Oz, so they kept that scene and used the melody as theme music throughout the picture. Whenever Dorothy's on the screen, the music of Over the Rainbow is there. MGM certainly understood marketing, and they kept all the music under wraps while the film was being shot. And then six weeks before the movie was scheduled to open in theaters, the studio put on a special coast-to-coast radio broadcast with all the songs which included We're Off to See the Wizard, Ding Dong the Witch is Dead, and If I Only Had a Brain. But Judy Garland's performance of Over the Rainbow took center stage, and when the movie came out, that recording was already at the top of the hit parade.
3: I heard. Yeah. That's why On the rainbow
7: why, oh, why can't I?
0: Judy Garland and Over the Rainbow from the movie The Wizard of Oz. You're listening to Forty-Five RPM music of the forties and fifties. I'm your host, Sam Waldron and we have time for two more songs with interesting stories behind them. When Valentine's Day rolls around every year, radio listeners are likely to hear a song called My Funny Valentine from a 1937 musical called Babes in Arms. It's a love song, all right, but not especially flattering. Some music historians think that may be a reflection of Lorenz Hart, who wrote the lyrics. Hart was short and considered unattractive. He didn't really seem to fit in. He had only a few friends, he never married, he lived with his mother as an adult, and he was gay when that just wasn't acceptable. Hart was born in Harlem in 1885. He studied journalism for a couple of years, and in 1919 he met Richard Rogers. The two of them wrote more than 600 songs together, including the lyrics for 26 Broadway musicals. In the show Babes in Arms, My Funny Valentine is performed by the female lead character Billy Smith, sung to a guy named Valentine Lamar. In the song, Smith pokes fun at the way Valentine looks and smiles and talks, but then says she doesn't want him to change. My Funny Valentine didn't get much attention outside of the musical, although it made a minor splash on the Hit Parade charts when it was performed in 1945 by vocalist Ruth Gaylor. But after later recordings by Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, Margaret Whiting, and many others, The song gradually became a pop standard. Just before his death in 1943, Lorenz Hart wrote some lyrics suggesting he had only one friend in the world, which most people agree would have been Richard Rogers. These two produced an enormous catalog of music that's an essential part of what's known as the Great American Songbook. Now let's listen to the unusual love song, My Funny Valentine, as it was performed by British singer and songwriter Rod Stewart.
8: Valentine Sweet comic Valentine You make me smile with my heart Your looks are laughable Unphotographable Yet you're my favorite work of art is your figure less than greek is your mouth a little weak when you open it to speak are you smart but don't change your hair for me not if you care for me Don't change.
0: Rod Stewart and my funny Valentine. And now for our last story in this hour. You've undoubtedly heard of band leader Tommy Dorsey. Today I'm going to introduce another musician with almost exactly that same name, Thomas Andrew Dorsey. He was born in a small town in Georgia in 1899, and he came to music naturally. His father was a minister, his mother taught piano. Over his lifetime, Dorsey wrote the words and music for hundreds of songs, And this is the story of one of them, which is now the most recorded gospel song in history. It's called, Take My Hand, Precious Lord. In his younger days, Dorsey was a blues pianist who injected some rhythm elements of jazz and blues into gospel music. When he was 32, Dorsey became the music director of the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Chicago. The minister was hoping Dorsey would bring a southern musical sound to the church services. Thomas Dorsey introduced a rhythm and blues version of the hymn, He's the Lily of the Valley, and he organized the first gospel chorus in the country. And then tragedy struck. Dorsey was suddenly called away to learn that his wife had died giving birth to a son who died two days later. Take My Hand, Precious Lord, was written to express his profound grief when everything he cared most about seemed to be suddenly gone. In the song, Dorsey poured out his heart in his grief and the resulting song, which we're about to hear, was ultimately translated into more than 50 languages. The song became a favorite of Martin Luther King, Jr., and Mahalia Jackson sang it at King's funeral in 1968. Take My Hand, Precious Lord has unforgettable lyrics that gain some of their power from their simplicity, using everyday words, most only one syllable long. Through the storm, through the night Lead me on to the light Take my hand, precious Lord Lead me home Here's that song now as it was recorded by Elvis Presley for his 1957 Christmas album
6: Precious
5: Lord Take my hand,
8: lead me on, let me stand.
5: just love Precious love, lead me home When the darkness appears
0: and the gospel song "Take my Hand, Precious Lord. Well, I have to say this has been an interesting journey through a few decades of music from the middle of the 20th century. In fact, I think it would be fun to do another show like this sometime. There's certainly plenty of good material. How about a rock and roll song that got its title from the brand name on a box of makeup that happened to be in the recording studio? Or how about a beautiful song written by Willie Nelson and recorded by somebody else? who did such a terrific job with it that Willie's own recording is all but forgotten. We could explore music from other films, including Oklahoma, West Side Story, Guys and Dolls, and I'd love to learn some stories behind more rock, jazz, and rhythm and blues songs, too. So definitely, we'll do that someday. For now, that's all the time we have. I'm your host, Sam Waldron, and from Judy Garland, Buddy Holly, Alfred Hitchcock, Frank Sinatra, and all the rest of us here at 45 RPM... Here's wishing you a good day, a good week, and so long for now.